Hi, it's it's awesome to be on here. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for thank you for being a guest. How have you been coping in general terms with what I'm describing is what's going on at the moment? The event. Um, well, <laughs> I've been watching a lot of The Witcher on Netflix, um, and I've, I'm sort of hyper fixating on it a little bit. Uh, I've I've watched all I watched the whole series, and I'm onto the second book. Um, it has a uh, it's so annoying because it has so many like problems with it, but also I really love it, and Henry Cavill in it is just awesome. And I yeah, so I'm sort of that's that's the main that's the main way I'm dealing with it. <laughs> That makes me think that I should give it another go because I, I generally like high fantasy. Um, but I watched the first episode and I was like, is this trying to make me not like this program? I, I, I just, I don't, I think probably the reason I stuck with it is because um, Henry Cavill looks amazing in it and he's fighting stuff. And well, fair enough. It's. <laughs> Like, it's um yeah basically it's but also like I think the world building is awesome. Um, I'm 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 really interested in the way that the world is constructed, and I've I've grown I've come to appreciate that a lot more now. I'm reading the books. Um, ah, cool. Well, maybe I will uh, maybe I will give it another go because <laughs> I didn't give it very much time to uh, build its world. So, uh, <laughs> uh, fantastic. Um, you're doing lots of exciting uh, improv things at the moment. Uh, well, I feel like I'm actually doing a lot more like organising and producing stuff rather than like doing improv. I run. Um, uh, oh my god! I should say I should just like introduce who I am because no one knows who I am probably. Um, so uh, I'm 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 Sophie and um, I mainly do improv stuff in the north of England. Um, so I'm not really connected to the London scene at all. Um, I uh, so I run Leeds University Improv. Uh, I do a session for them every week. That's gone online recently. Um, and um, I also study, I'm a second year theatre and performance student at Leeds University. Um, but I got my start in Nottingham with uh, Miss Imp Improv Comedy. Fantastic. So um, paint a picture for me of what was happening uh, with Leeds University Improv um, before. And then tell me about what's happening since you've gone online. So um, uh, I was elected as head of improv this year because um, we, have, we have a comedy society and then like an improv section of the comedy society. And so um, I've been running workshops every week and I, I basically this year I, I pushed to kind of bring in long form as a, as a bigger thing that the society does because the society had kind of done long form a bit, um, but I wanted to kind of um, bring it in as something that people could maybe go off and make their own long form group and feel like they had the confidence to do that. And also like... Um, Keep, keep bringing in teachers who have a lot of experience in long form and can kind of offer that experience to teach people um like just before um just before the event um we were just about to start a long a regular long form group that met up on sundays kind of like an advanced group um because like the thursday workshops we do like um i ripped the format off of university of nottingham where we do like an hour of workshop and then like an hour of games and scenes where we, we don't do any feedback or learning at all it's just like games and fun um, mm. And so we wanted to make a separate group where people could like um, they could they could work on more advanced stuff and have the space to do um, scenes that are a bit more like serious or emotionally intimate and um, have, have the space to do that basically and feel like they can they can take the pace a bit more differently. Um, and uh, yeah, there was it was it's weird looking back on it because we did we, we had our first sort of Sunday long form session and then literally the Monday the, the Monday next day we had the big kind of press conference going this is a 
this is a pandemic and um, I, mm. I didn't realise that improv session was going to be the last improv that I did for a long time and it's so odd to, to, to think back on it in that way because it was so much fun and I couldn't have had a better kind of send off for, for improv <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah just to give uh, people that weren't there what sort of things did you do in that, that last glorious session um, from what I remember, we did, we, we did, I, we definitely did like a whole long form set about like a, a city with like a totalitarian government that was run by this guy who was very sexy and everyone fancied him. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, he had like, um, he, it, the, that character was like really turned on by people being authoritative, but everyone was scared of him. And like, it was, it was just ridiculous. <laughs> so uh, what sort of format were you doing to to get that um we were doing a pretty flower um so uh, which basically if you don't know what a pretty flower is it's um it's a format where you have one scene that you keep coming back to over and over again so in our case it was like um the picket line there were a bunch of protesters who were protesting against the government um so we always you keep returning to that scene um but then um so you do that scene for a little bit and then if someone says something that you're like oh i want a tangent on that you tangent on that scene for a little bit and uh, when you're done tangenting you come back to the original scene and maybe time's moved on a bit a little bit or some some characters have, have gone there are different characters in the same location uh and so the idea is that it's like um the 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 scene you keep returning to is the polleny bit and then the uh, the tangents are the other petals that come off of it if that makes sense yeah, no, that sounds great. That's a very concise uh, uh, explanation. Thank you. Very I much. think Liam Weber taught me that format originally. Cool, cool, cool. Um, so yeah, so you've now moved online. What have been some of the advantages, disadvantages of that? Well, because th- I think we did. Um, so the the really big thing that we've done is um, we've shifted Comedy Society uh, onto a Discord server. Um, so a Discord server is basically like um it's basically like a it's like a kind of public house where there's like different conversations that you can interact with so there's like um there's like a so uh, and then you can you can choose to mute conversations that you're not interested in so um uh my deputy of improv Seb Applewhite um they set up all of that um so we have like um a movie chat uh like a video games chat but we also have like a welfare chat and a covid panic chat um where people can like vent about um stuff that's going wrong uh, and stuff they're really worried about um but if if someone else in the group doesn't really want to engage with that for the minute it's bad for their mental health you can just mute that conversation so that people have um really what, what it's what it's done really well is it's allowed us to have that kind of this sort of this space for a community exist to exist that's nuanced because before that we had a facebook chat and a facebook group that really no one like yeah, everyone used the facebook chat for everything but like the box is so small and like um you know we would have like uh, you you can't because all the conversation is in one channel you can't be very nuanced about that conversation so discord is great for like breaking up the different conversations discord also supports um voice chats and now video chat in the last um week or so has been implemented um so you can see people and you can chat to people on like a kind of a very easy ad hoc basis um and it's been a really really important part of um keeping our community together and safe um they um, they've recently rolled out a lot of support for people who are interested in moving their community online because um, there was a local amateur theatre company in Nottingham. I'm, I'm calling from Nottingham. I've come back from Leeds now. Um, it's, it's a, there's a lace market theatre have um, moved their community onto Discord now as well so that they can do um, online play readings with all their members, even though they, they all can't get to each other, obviously. So um, Discord is great for like 
it, it was it was originally I think designed for uh, video gaming communities um, because of the voice chat element. Um, but really, it's it's a, it's a really great tool for anyone who wants a community um, to have that kind of nuanced way of interacting with each other. Um, it's great. <laughs> yeah, that sounds cool. That sounds cool. Um, and you've been running online uh, sessions. You recently did one on scene painting. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's right. So um, y- yeah, like like all the other. Um, improv facilitators I kind of just sort of jumped online and figured it out as I've gone along I, I try and write up my um, my findings on the online improv facilitators Facebook group but um, uh, yeah it's been it's been really weird and um, I'm so grateful to that every everyone has been so um, forgiving with me and like I've had more than enough people to run sessions every week that's that's been awesome um, yes yeah, so scene painting we did the most successful session that I think we've done so far is uh, was on scene painting so Uh, Scene painting is an improv technique where um, you sort of narratively describe the context of the scene you're in. Um, It's it's kind of different to narration. It's more like audio describing. You're not necessarily telling the audience what to think or what the character's thinking. You're you're describing what's there. So you might say, um, uh, we see the the floor has a red carpet and there's a cat um, um, sleeping lazily on the other side of the room. And so you give give context and you kind of evoke a location. so we did some of that in the, in that in this workshop because um, because physicality is so limited over video chat. I wanted to try and see if scene painting would help us with this um, creating the sort of imaginary worlds together. Um, and I also brought in some stuff from um, I was inspired by Dungeons and Dragons. Um, in Dungeons and Dragons, it's really common to um, to both scene paint. Um, so you having you have the locations described to you in the game, but also um, if you're playing a character, you it's really common to describe what your character is doing. So it's like, um, I set the guard on fire with um, with a spell, um, or um, I, I walk out of the room and and um, and and um, flutter my hair as I go. Like it's really common to it's really it's like that that kind of way of evoking situations and, and characterization has just has been in D and D since forever. Um, so, so the scene painting was really successful and um we we created like these amazing like um uh wacky locations like we had like uh, abandoned circuses and uh, t- uh, tigers that could talk to people and stuff but we also w- were able to get um sort of very like sort of social realism sort of scenes i remember that we had a scene where um there was a father and his son in a fish and chip shop uh, and the father was sort of awkwardly explaining to his son about an affair he'd had. Um, and it was a very grounded scene. And the scene painting in that case allows you to be very detailed about seemingly mundane things. You, you can, by describing something mundane, like um, uh, I, uh, uh, my, my character sort of picks at his nails nervously. Like you, you kind of, that's a mundane action, but you add sort of meaning to it. And so I found that really, I wasn't expecting to find that at all. And that was a really, that was a really lovely surprise. Um, yeah, and other things. Another thing that surprised me with that session is that whenever I, whenever I've been taught scene painting in the past, like it's very much been like you, f- you, 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 you discover you can pull the rug out from underneath people. So two people will be having a very serious conversation, and it's like, and then we, we, and then we see they're on the moon, and it's like, oh, oh they, we really pulled the rug out, and uh, people, people do wacky stuff like that, and, and and create jokes and punchlines with the scene painting. But for some reason, with this session, everyone was very, very much kind of did these sort of mysterious scenes, um, like like mysterious scenes or um, evocative scenes or atmospheric scenes and stuff and there was there was less of there was a lot less jokes than I was expecting and I, I still can't quite figure out 
exactly how that dynamic came about, but that was interesting. Um, it's interesting how scene painting allows you to create a richer environment because it's a shortcut to create things that would be harder to create through what you say and how you act. Mm, absolutely. And it adds, what it also does is the like, it's not just about like adding physical things. It's about giving context and weight to stuff that's already been said. Um, uh, like um, if you have two two characters who are sitting on a bench and and making jokes to each other, and then someone and then and then you have someone add the fact that um, she um, this character has um, is missing a finger, then suddenly there's there's a, there's you know you add context and weight and story to whatever's going on and there's there's something unsaid there between these two characters and you you add weight to what's happening i also think it's an interesting way of um focusing the audience's attention because you know someone might you know act like they had one finger less or something like that but that might easily be missed whereas if you're you know using the focus of scene painting you can just find different things mm, absolutely um, and also I kind of I, I think it allows people just to slow down a little bit mm. just to kind of I don't know I whenever I've done it it's tended that people can scene paint something and we just sort of let that thing land um, and then the people performing can kind of you know draw into what they're doing it's a really it's a really t a powerful technique that I really like um, and uh, you mentioned um, you mentioned Dungeons and Dragons. You've also <laughs> been running uh, weekly uh, role playing one shots with audience participation. Tell me about those. Yeah, those have been really good fun. Um, so because I've I've kind of wanted to get the uh, the improv lot involved more in D and D because quite a few of us are involved in it. Like half the comedy society committee, we, we play D and D um, every Tuesday night. Um, and um, I, I wanted I wanted to find a way to get more people involved in that, and I could never find a way to scale it up because like. Um, D and D, like normally, the way D and D works is you have one person who's the games master, and they describe sort of situations. Uh, like you're in a cave, and there are two. The, the one entrance, there's smoke coming from there, and the other entrance, there's there's you you can hear you can um, you you can hear a faint dripping noise. Which way do you go? They set up situations like that, and then you have the players who um, they they usually come up with characters before the session, and then they play those characters, uh, and then um, they play those characters through the situations, and you create storylines together. Um, and camp and uh, campaigns as they're called, where you have several sessions that um, like every week, um, or a session every week. Um, they can last for like months or years. Like there are there are groups that, that have been, there are groups that have been playing the same characters for decades. That's quite common. Um, and um, so D and D offers a kind of depth of characterization and um, uh, experience that that improv certainly helps with and can enhance. But improv itself, like modern improv you know sort of anglo-american improv at the minute doesn't really do just because you normally have a, an hour-long show at the most um so i want to get improv people involved in D, D more um and yeah couldn't figure out how to how to do it because if you've got too many players you're all no one gets a decent go so the way that i've done it is um we have um in a sign-up sheet and we have a different games master every week a different cast of three people every week uh, a different um, a different role playing system because there's way more systems than D and D and there's way simpler systems than D and D and there's way more systems that are more suitable for certain people than D and D might be. Um, so 
uh, the, the so the first one that we ran was um, uh, it's, a, it's a system that I ran called uh, Lasers and Feelings, which is I love lasers and feelings. It's like a sort of sci-fi themed game, and you only have to remember one number. You can um, it, it, you can just you can just make a character really easily. It's very improv-y. Um The the next game it was set in like a magical school, and all the players played magical school teachers. And then the next game was um, oh, this last week it was um, set in like a cyberpunk future. Uh, and all the players were um, assassins who um, kill high-profile criminals live on TV for money. Like it's so cool. Um, so, so we're doing one shots where, um, so we've got a different cast every week. But um, it, it's, it was, I think, it's a really fun way to like showcase all the different systems to the improv folks and comedy folks and get people more involved in RPGs. Um, so I, I'm I'm looking into a way to make that like to make that more open to the public because at the minute it's kind of a members only thing um and i but the the sessions have been so entertaining and actually so much more entertaining than so many D podcasts that i've tried to listen to <laughs> um there are good D podcasts but um there are some that are pretty bad um but they've been so entertaining that i wanted i was like oh this would be amazing if we could stream this because you've got improvisers playing D D, and so you have people coming to D D with a with a wealth of experience and um commitment and an interest that is that is different to just kind of people who've never done that kind of thing coming to D D. and um i'm particularly inspired by um um james demato series um one shot which is a great podcast series where they play a different system every week with chicago improvisers um so that, that's that's what inspired me initially yeah, I um, well, I come from a tabletop role playing background. That was the thing that I did before I got into improv, and um, you know, last summer I played a game of Fiasco um, outside the Miller with improvisers, and it was just it was brilliant. They they got it, they got it straight away. You know, we gave them you know locations, objects, motivations, and then they just ran with it, and it was really beautiful. Um, there was also a lot less arguing and blocking than I have experienced in tabletop role playing. You play with improvisers; they're normally much happier to build on other people's ideas. We had a you say that we had a really in the D and D group that I'm in that is nearly all improvisers. Um, we had a really long argument with the DM about why our druid should be able to turn into a swarm of rats and not just one rat, and it was literally <laughs> an argument that went on for like twenty minutes, and it was ridiculous. <laughs> Um, yeah, and um, it's interesting what you're saying about um, the kind of the richness of the world that you create together and the depth of the character when you're playing the same characters over longer periods of time. I mean, there are kind of a few outliers, I suppose the nearest is closer each day, the improvised soap, and they play the same characters over long periods of time, or, you know, the improvathons or something like that. Um, but you're right, I miss that um, shared sense of creation. And having that world that you've built together and that you can live in, and then, you know, things happen in that world, and it has a big emotional impact because you invested so much in it. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, and um, I also love uh, lasers and feelings because I am an old man, and I am unable to um, <laughs> understand too many complex rules anymore. I can, um, if I've internalised them as a youth, so. Um, Call of Cthulhu is my first and one true love, so I'm on board for that. Mm -hmm. um, but these days, give me a role-playing game that's on one side of A4, 
yes. uh, the rules are on one side of the foot and I am on board and I am willing to play but anything more than that I'm, I'm a big fan of one page RPGs I'm a um, which are they they basically what we've been playing every week at the um, the weekly D&D games that we run um, and yeah if, if if you're if you're listening and particularly if you're an improviser even if you're not an improviser I don't care like um, get involved with with role playing just give it a go like um, go online and look for lasers and feelings that's an awesome free one um, some other awesome ones that I played recently is Honey Heist um, which is a game about where you, everyone plays criminal bears and you have two <laughs> you have two stats criminal and bear um, and you have to steal a you have to steal a pot of honey um, and avoid the detection of humans um, there was another great one that I played recently called Big Gay Orcs where um, you play a you play um, uh, a, a several orcs who uh, are in charge of running a, um, a fortress that humans are about to attack um, and you you um, you but all of the orc characters you have um, some sort of um, secret that you have that um, and um, th- th- you want to try and keep hidden from the others that, that this um, uh, so like you might be secretly creative or um, <laughs> sensitive or um, uh, passionate or maybe you have a you have a crush on one of the other orcs and you don't know how to express that and um, and all the, and these secrets kind of come into play throughout the game and it's it's really brilliant so so uh, actually so honey heist and um, Big Gay Orcs are both by Grant Howitt, who's an awesome games designer. He's 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 really excellent, um, and I, I he's he's written loads of um, really simple one page RPGs. Um, so I, I check out his stuff absolutely. Yeah, that's that. I would echo that recommendation. For me, uh, improv and role playing are so connected in my mind that sometimes I will swap the words over and say one when I meant to mean to say the other. Um, so yeah, it's it's and also there's lots of things we can learn. Um, that role players can learn from improvisers and improvisers can learn from role players. Mm. Um, so a Monty Cook Games recently published uh, a document called Consent in Gaming. And basically what that does um, is it establishes boundaries. It, you know, it talks about, you know, what 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 is acceptable, what can we, you know, what's on the table for tonight and, and what isn't. And that's a really powerful tool. Yeah, like the uh, the X card, for example, is a, is a really useful tool for consent and stuff. So... Um, uh, so an X card um, is something where it's literally like an index card with an X written on it. And um, if you know you're going to be playing a game that might go into into topics that might be a bit sensitive, so that it might be it might be sex, it might be violence, uh, it could um, you know it could just it could be something that could be potentially sensitive. You have that card there, and if any player feels uncomfortable, they just pick up the card, and um, that is an indication that something needs to change, and we need to kind of dial this back a bit to make sure everyone's comfortable. Um, mm. And also the idea of it is the player doesn't have to justify why they're uncomfortable. It's just a signal of like, this this isn't right. Not everyone's having fun right now. We need to we need to make something change. Um, and it's and 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 because it's improv it's dnd um whatever it is like um you can just change it i remember like a long time ago i had a player who um i I was the 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 players were like exploring a cave and i was like um you come across a um you come across a crowd of snakes that are slithering towards you and she's like oh i really hate snakes i'm like no okay that's all right it's spiders um the spiders are crawling towards you and we just moved on immediately and like there was no change to the game whatsoever um so yeah and, and, you know, as in improv, as in role-playing, if you've got a group and everyone's given consent and everyone's happy to explore uh, difficult subjects, then, yeah, go for it. But it's like if you're at a jam, um, it's just, you know, let's have this conversation. Mm. You know, we can still have, there's still loads of fun we can have 
without, you know, traumatising somebody. Yeah, like, and games are a really interesting space to kind of explore those topics. Um, there's another game uh, I'll, I'll just mention quickly called Monster Hearts. Um, I've played Monster Hearts, yeah. Yeah, so it's, that's a yeah. that's an awesome game about... I've not played it myself, but it's, it's about... Um, uh, supernatural teenagers who are also trying to navigate their sexuality. Um, so the idea is it's based off of stuff like um, stuff, stuff like Buffy, basically, where um, y- you've got these kind of hormonal teenagers who are also having to save the world at the same time, and it's just <laughs> lots of kind of conflicting feelings. Um, and um, each each um, class that you play, so you can you, you you can play all kinds of different like supernatural creatures, like vampires and werewolves and stuff, and they all have um, a sex move. So whenever any of the characters have sex something goes drastically wrong in the narrative because that's what always happens. <laughs> um, so, But also, the, it, it, what, the genius of the game is it creates these kind of interesting analogies for um, coming of age, um, for queerness, um, and uh, allows those themes to be explored in, a, uh, in, an, in an interesting narrative way, but also like in, a, in, a, in a way that can, be, that can be fun and kind of um, campy, but also has the space to be sort of emotionally resonant and... and, and um, touching yeah definitely um yeah i ran a, a session of monster hearts uh in a pub which in retrospect was perhaps not the idea. <laughs> uh well <laughs> you know we, we were exploring areas that perhaps you know i don't know we hadn't got the consent of the other drinkers uh, <laughs> um yeah that's weird isn't it i'll play role-playing games in a pub but i won't, won't do improv anyway <laughs> um cool um Tell me about um, your degree, because you're doing theatre and performance, because some of us might think, well, that sounds like the same thing, Sophie. What's that all about? Well, so there's similar sorts of things, and there can be quite a lot of overlap. So uh, the way I think of it is, like, theatre is kind of stuff that historically we understand to be on the stage. Like, there's a stage, um, there's an audience, and we're watching a thing that we've probably paid to come and see. There are actors. We know who the actors are, that kind of thing. Um, so I guess that's, that's I mean there's there's a variety of different ways you can you can understand it. But that's how I understand it. Um, and then performance is a bit more of a loosey goosey sort of thing. It's more about applying the things we know about theatre to um, uh, to other sort of aspects of life, sort of sociological stuff. Um, so uh, for example, there you find it in uh, Judith Butler talks about um, performativity and gender. This idea that um, gender isn't like an innate um, quality of a person it's um it's it's set of behaviors that you learn from your from your parents from the people around you from the culture that you grow up in and they're kind of imprinted on you as you grow up um and it's not like a kind of there's not like a a special glass bead inside you that's that, that has your gender written on it it's it's behaviors that are taught to you um and that you there is a certain role you're expected to play there's an understanding of how that role should be played and um Things and things sometimes get tricky for people when they don't want to play that role in a certain way. Um, so that's that's an example of, of of performance in that it's it's not necessarily on a stage, but you can see there are analogies with theatre there. And you're working on something interesting for your dissertation. Yes, so uh, I'm currently writing my dissertation proposal at the minute, uh, and um, my paper is um, hopefully going to be on. Um, uh, gender expression in tabletop role-playing games. Um, wow. So um, using sort of theories of performativity, but also um, ludology and stuff. And I'm looking into like, oh, do, what, how do game mechanics play into the way that gender is expressed in a game? Um, 
like why do players um play characters that aren't their gender or, or play characters that are their gender but maybe a different expression of of gender maybe that, like and I, i'm interested in investigating that 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 whole thing I'm, st- I'm still working on that at the minute yeah no that sounds really um that sounds really interesting mm. um it's is it indie role-playing games that have um uh made that more possible i mean i'm not really up to speed with dungeons and dragons because it's not really my thing has that is that is that more progressive than it perhaps used to be well it depends because on the one hand so um two of my favorite terms that i've come across that i'm totally gonna pass off as academic terms are fluff and crunch i don't know if you've heard these these terms before but like um, crunch is basically rules. It's like the rules that you have to do in order to play the game. You have to roll the dice. You have to make an ability check by rolling your dice and adding this number. Uh, and then fluff is the kind of stuff that's kind of around the game that informs how the game looks and feels, but doesn't necessarily play on the role uh, on the on like the rules of the game. Um, so uh, an example of fluff would be um, like my character that I play on Tuesday nights has like strawberry blonde hair um, uh, and. Uh, he has a job at a kitchen like that stuff that doesn't impact the rules but it's stuff that informs me about how i play that character um and yeah so that that's kind of the the distinction there and so really it's um it's interesting because even games that don't explicitly mention like um gender play or queerness or anything at all um you know still have the potential to have tons of queer characters in them because it's it's what you make of the fluff basically um but also there are games where it like monster hearts where you have the the sex move and um also the the book it talks at length about how it's it's the game is intended to tackle possibly like sexuality and queer topics and stuff um but you could play a mon- you could play a game of monster hearts where all the characters are straight um and everyone plays their own gender like you you could do that like the game still allows you to do that um and so there's it's it depends on a number of factors it's not it's not necessarily the game is telling you to play these these characters but um um yeah so that's that's the kind of thing i'm I'm interested in looking into i'm hoping to do like a a survey and ask people not anonymous survey and ask people questions about that kind of play as well that sounds great i mean i i realized that i'm all about the fluff (laughs) <laughs> and not about the crunch. Um, so I've learned that about myself. And also, um, when you've got a role-playing game, everyone plays that game differently, depending on who's running the game, who's playing the game. You know, everyone brings different things to the table. So yeah, you can you can make it about whatever you want, mm. as long as everyone's happy to make it about that thing. Mm. And it comes back to that, you know, consent and discussion of boundaries again. Yeah. Um yeah, I, I like it when rules can have a, a definitive impact on the narrative. Like, um, the there's a game called um, Apocalypse World where all the moves that all the players make have an impact on the, on the narrative. Like, your moves are called stuff like um, read like read a bad situation or um, like they they are moves that don't just like get you numbers and resources. They're moves that like move explicitly move the narrative on in some way. Um, that kind of thing um yeah <laughs> yeah sounds cool sounds cool um what else is on your mind Matt? um <laughs> so, let's let's look i'm going to pull back the curtain here and reveal that sophie has made a mind map which i encourage all guests to make um i guess i've got stuff about mental health and i've got stuff about um where improv 
fits alongside um, theatre as in, in like the kind of the sphere of theatre. Um, I would love to hear about both those things. Um, okay, I'll start with the theatre thing then, because um, we've we've talked quite a lot about role playing games and stuff, and so I'll I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll I'll bring it all back to improv. Um, so I've always been kind of weirded out how improv seems and feels very displaced from the rest of the theatre world. Like, not just in that a lot of improvisers I know aren't actors, but also like on my um, theatre course, I just don't really see the the world of improv that I know represented like in the course. But I hear a lot about improvisation. Like the Leeds Uni theatre course is really interested in improvisation, but doesn't seem to intersect with like any of the any of the improv work that I've seen, which is really strange. Um, because it's like there's so much there's there's so much commonality between the two disciplines, and really theatre's been doing tons of stuff that is that is that is re- that is kind of analogous to the improv world, like. Um, because I think a lot about the kind of genealogy of improv and like where it came from. Because um, we have a, we know some of the key players like Spolin, obviously, and Paul Sills, um, and Keith Johnston. Um, but also, I think that improv fits in with a kind of uh, certain art movements as well. So the ones that I re- I often think about are um, Dadaism. Um, and performance art. So Dadaism um, is a. Uh, it was it was basically a form of um, absurdist artwork that emerged during the, the First World War. So what happened was like a bunch of uh, a bunch of artists were really annoyed that the World War One was happening. They all kind of privileged artists. They all fled to Zurich because not everyone can flee can flee to Zurich when World War One is happening. Uh, and they um, they. Um, they they basically formed like a cabaret night called Cabaret Voltaire, and um, they put on really weird, um, really out there theatre and um, and dance and song and music and stuff, um, just to completely. Be- they they wanted to. They, they were sick of the kind of crazy world they were living in, and they wanted to like recreate art completely. Um, and there are there, you get that a bit in futurism as well. I'm not going to go into futurism because it's super sexist and I hate it. Um, <laughs> and um, but also in uh, the 1960s in performance art particularly, uh, and you you get stuff like the happenings. Um, so uh, happenings with like these kind of uh, spontaneous uh, events um, that the the artists would put on, ideally like um, with the general public around them so they were kind of like flash mobs but not dancing and singing more like weird stuff uh the one that so the one that always comes to mind is um women licking jam off a car um which was literally just women licking jam off a car but but like there were also the general public were around and it was it was this spontaneous event that happened and like the idea of the happening so um alan caprow is a really important figure in the happenings movement um uh he's kind of considered as the the key figure or one of the key figures um um he uh, the, the idea behind happenings was that they were like you you kind of wrote down a very brief uh, idea of what you were going to do and then you did it and then you could never do it again uh and like a video recording of it was not the proper article um and so you can see obvious parallels with with improv there um but um uh, and uh, it, that kind of feeds into the performance art as well um and uh, also alongside that, you've got um, the similar things happening in music with like um, a chance and, um, and and randomness. So you get people like John Cage, Karl Heinz Stockhausen, and then later on Brian Eno um, and many other artists. Um, and um, they all kind of um, and then like coming back to theatre, though, um, a lot of these works came under uh, what Richard Schechner calls um, post 
post-dramatic theatre. That's post-dramatic theatre, not post, <laughs> not post-traumatic theatre, which is what someone <laughs> thought I said the other day. Um, but like the the, the phrase post-dramatic theatre has been around for decades, and I've never heard anyone in improv say it. Um, post, so post-dramatic theatre is um, theatre that's created that doesn't have like a script at its heart. And it's especially important in British theatre because British theatre is like historically been very married to the text. Like the text is the important thing. And I think that Shakespeare is a is kind of a big player in that sort of mentality. Um, and so um, really, I feel like um, uh, so, so alongside post-dramatic theatre, you have stuff what's called open score theatre. Um, so uh, if you think of a, a, so if you think of a script on one end, sort of. Open school theatre is um, theatre where, kind of like the happenings, you sort of have guidelines of what to do and then you can interpret them in other ways that you want. So um, you get artists like Steve Paxton, um, who's a choreographer, um, who is... Oh, yes. Uh, uh, contact improvisation. Yes, absolutely. So he's he's considered the kind of... the one of the earliest contact improvisation, not the inventor of contact improvisation, but um, he has a piece called Satisfying Lover, which is basically a series of descriptions of people walking. And it will say, this person walks to half the length of the space and stops for 30 seconds. And the next person walks to half the length of that first person and then stops for a little bit more. And it's very, and it's like, it's a very simple script, but you can do a lot with that. And like, so I, I just, I keep seeing these these parallels with, the improv scene that I'm a part of, that and 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 with theatre, and yet no communication happening between them. Because you know, thinking of open score theatre, it makes me think of like the the endless discussions people have about how much structure you're allowed to give to an improv show. So you have you have improv shows like um, Boys Next, uh, the the Noise Next Door, um, who like they have like a series of games. They have a very rigid structure, um, um, and like they'll do like improvised songs where. Um, it's clear they're kind of substituting words in. It's still a great show, but it's very structured improvisation and it, and it has an awesome audience. Um, and then in, in musical improv, you get discussions about like um, the, 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 as I understand it, I've not done musical improv in much depth, but like you have, you start the show with the group song, um, then you have the I want song, then you establish the villain, then you establish the side characters, and then you kind of do what you like after that. And then you've kind of got an understanding and other teams like um, Parallelogram or Phonograph, uh, which is the best improv troupe name ever. The best improv <laughs> troupe name ever. And I'm so happy that I can finally like say it without... <laughs> um, but I read their book on narrative improvisation recently and uh, it's a series of essays written by all of them. And um, they talk about how they use the hero's, the hero's journey and um, they've all kind of got that score in their heads of like, this is, this is our starting point for how a story should go we can deviate if we want but we're all kind of on the same page and like so that's another example of an open score like improv uses open scores but no one calls them that because there's no conversation between there's no conversation between the the, the theatre world and the improv world really or because I'm always trying to think of like what do we call the improv world that currently exists right now like so I cause sometimes, cause sometimes I call it modern improvisation as opposed to like and it's like so like starting from like Spolin onwards I guess or even with like compass players onwards um is it modern improvisation but also I'm inclined to call it like um especially over here I feel I feel my I feel inclined to call it like um Anglo-American improv because it feels like there's such a kind of it feels like we have those 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 two practices kind of coming to us and like um yeah I, I sort of struggle to sort of really pass the differences between a lot of the the practice with um american improv and british improv but like 
um, I know that there's it's it's two spheres of thought, um, and so uh, yeah, Anglo-American improv is kind of what I call it sometimes, but no one else calls it that. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. Um, I'm yeah, I'm also very interested in you know I love improv and I love learning from improv teachers and I love reading improv books. That that P graph, I'm going to call them P graph <laughs> uh, book. Do it now is is fantastic. Um, but I'm also interested in looking beyond improv into the improv adjacent things such as role playing such as contact improvisation such as physical theater um because i feel that there are so many parallels and there are so many lessons you can learn from these other things that you can then bring into improv that it it it, it seems a shame just to be so narrowly focused on this one art form when there's all these other art forms that we can learn from because i mean i am a bit displaced because uh you know the the London scene is so big, and I've never I've never been a part of that, so I can't really, I can't really speak for what kind of conversations are happening within that scene, just kind of like dynamically. Um, but like from from where I am, like looking at the theatre academia that I'm being given on my course, I don't see that. You know, I don't see truth in comedy being set. I don't see um, impro being set really, um, and I feel that disconnect currently. Yeah. Mm. Uh, that's really interesting thank you so um yeah tell me about um improv and mental health um okay so i will preface this and say i'm not an expert um but uh i think that improv is so important like in in all its forms that i've talked about i think that improv is a really 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 important thing for us to be doing all together and i think that we should maybe even be encouraging people who don't do improv to start doing improv now because uh, I went to an interesting online seminar by Lacey Alana, who is a psychotherapist who incorporates improv and clowning and circus into her uh, practice. Um, and she um, she talked about this idea that um, uh, uh, improv allows us to um, sort of access higher brain function Um which is particularly important at this time where everything is very stressful because what what the what stress if you're constantly exposed to stress you just end up diverting more and more resources to managing the stress and to nothing else um and so doing improv helps to engage us higher brain processes and helps us to feel that sense of escapism and uh, creativity but it also um it also makes sure we keep that ability to empathize with other people going and um connect to other people going as well um and so that's that's why i'm really passionate about keeping keeping my improv sessions going and i've certainly met people like like i've certainly met people like around the improv scene just just generally um that i've met where i've met people who i know are being partly kept alive by improv because of the, the, mm. the because of the social resources it gives to people and the ability to socialize mm. with other people the but also the space to be creative and to be vulnerable. I've been very fortunate to be in two communities where the the the, the dominant practice is to is is to be vulnerable, to go for the relationship in the scene and not the joke, to not be competitive. Mm. Um, and I think that's so important to give those spaces to people, especially to to men, um, because suicide in, in men is so much higher. And there's this there's this, uh, and as I understand it, it's it's that that ability and that that sort of um permission to 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 kind of connect with other people to talk to other people to be vulnerable with other people is like the it's much more difficult for men it's much more difficult for men than than is expected for women um 
Yes, just on that note, I love improv for many reasons, but yes, the ability to express vulnerability on stage is such a powerful thing for me. So um, I'm in a duo called Doctor Hooprov, and in amongst all the Daleks, Cybermen and other fun things, every time we do a show, uh, either Bryn or I will have an issue um, that we are facing. And it's always Bryn or I, it's always a true issue that we're facing. But what we're doing is we're putting it into a science fiction context and we're putting it in front of an audience. And we don't find solutions, but just being able to express that on stage and have the audience accept it um, is such a powerful thing. So um, I really recommend, um, yeah, using improv to be able to express that vulnerability. It's a very powerful thing. Absolutely. And I think that, um, uh, so the, the president of Comedy Society currently um, at Leeds Uni, uh, Leo Adams, is... Um, they've always been a, a real advocate for welfare within comedy society. They've always been an advocate for the idea that comedians are a, a higher risk of mental health problems than perhaps other people. Um, and so they've been amazing at like providing welfare resources and like encouraging people to, to access welfare resources and supporting them. We have two welfare officers who support our community and we've inspired um, a couple of other societies to have welfare officers because it's not currently, um, man it's not, it's not currently a requirement by Leeds Union. Leeds Union. Um, so Leo's really been an inspiration to me on pursuing that angle of improv and ensuring that, that people are kept safe and have that can be vulnerable and kept safe in that sense. Yeah, yeah, um, that's yeah, that sounds a really powerful thing. Is there something you can? I mean, what sort of things do these welfare officers do, or is there anything we can do ourselves to try and keep ourselves safe? So um, currently, um, we've, we've we've changed our practice a bit, but but um, the, I mean, the way that it worked was um, we have a welfare officer, and um, they uh, they have like a welfare Wednesday, uh, where they have like a they set aside an hour or two in the day. And people can, because we're at the uni and everyone's kind of in the same spe- kind of in the same place. They can they can come and talk to their welfare officer, um, have a chat, or they can message them. Um, we have a male and a female welfare officer because we understand that that like that can be helpful that 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 distinction. Um, and um, yeah, allowing people to to talk to to talk to someone about anything that's going on. And um, if there are serious issues, then um, they're brought up with the rest of the committee. Um, and uh, also, the welfare officer keeps a record um, of um, issues that arise, even if they seem quite small. Um, and so uh, I've done a bit of safeguarding. Um, so th- the purpose for that is that if you um, if you write down issues that are happening, even if it seems small, you can find recurring issues um, and you can. It makes it a lot easier to kind of troubleshoot if there's maybe one person who's causing who's causing problems with with many people or if there's one person who's who's repeatedly having the same problem um you can track those issues and also if god forbid it gets if if god forbid um you need to provide evidence in court for whatever reason you have that record and you have that it's a lot more um it's a lot more trustworthy than a verbal report Mm, um but there are but, but there are proper welfare training resources um available like um they should be provided by your by a university union, and um, there are, there are other people like um, Stephen Davidson who provides training uh, in inclusivity and diversity. I did a I did a course with Stephen last year. He's excellent, really lovely guy. Yes, yes, 
yes yes his uh, his books are also very good cool so uh, a few a few big a big final questions um, what would you like to see more of in improv in the future either online or I'm going to say in the real world or not online I guess actually a threshold memory uh, which might seem Ooh. really weird so um, I just realised I said that with no context so coming back to scene painting <laughs> so um, I was reading it there's so video calls this is, this is so this is stuff I want to see more in online improv so video calls are exhausting and there's a variety of reasons why but part of the reason is because you're sat in the same place for ages doing the same thing over and over uh, like, like you might so you uh, I, there was a great article I read this morning um, you might be like having your work meetings uh maybe maybe like a tutorial with with a with a student uh and your um social events all happening at your computer in the same place and so um so what threshold memory is is um basically it, our brains um they in simple terms sort of help structure our memories based around physical locations so an obvious example of threshold memory is um if you walk if you like um walk out of a room and walk into a different room um you forget why you've walked into the room. That happens all the time. Um, and uh, it, it's just... Um, so... Something that's important to consider is that if people are doing improv in the same place that they're doing nearly everything else in their life at the minute, threshold memory is a lot harder to um, to manage because you don't have the benefit of going into different rooms. Like, when I run improv sessions, everyone comes from home or from uni into the improv room we stand up, we're stood up, we do exercises for a while, and then after the first hour we all sit down and we do scenes. And so, so you see there's a several different physical changes and physical attitudes that are happening there, not only just coming into the room but sitting down in a different part of the room, and you just lose all of that with a with an online session. But it's not impossible to get it back. Um, so yeah, cause, so uh, Seb Applewhite, again, this is, this is their theory. Like um, they, they study neuroscience at Leeds Uni as well, and we had a really interesting conversation about this. Um, their theory is that if we can find ways to trick people's threshold memory into activating, it can make improv sessions more enjoyable. And we think that that's why our scene painting session went so well. Um, because in scene, doing scene painting, you're creating imaginary locations that everyone's a part of, and then you're by each scene you're moving to a different location. Um, because uh, so I was reading an article... Um, even they they done tests on people where they've they set up like a dig, they set up a virtual room with like a controller and they ask someone to pick up an object from the room and then it gets put in like an invisible inventory so they can't see it once they picked it up and then the player moves into a different room and even though it's a digital room people still forget what object they pick up or they haven't, if they don't forget they have they have trouble remembering what it was wow. more than if they get asked what the object is when they've gone halfway across the room so it's really it's it's very powerful i think that the way seb described it to me was that like our brains are wired to take in all information as if it's a sat nav and now we've got to do more complex things than just be a sat nav um wow. <laughs> which is a, a really which is a really big oversimplification but like a body bodies in space is such an important thing to consider and scene painting really helps with that, but also putting people in breakout rooms is a more kind of explicit example where you're literally like um, 
taking people from a big video call and putting them into lots of little smaller video calls to do an exercise and then bringing them back to the main room. Uh, we also noticed that the same effect happens when you switch between different programs. So something that we do with our improv sessions that we started doing is we do the improv session and then we all uh, switch off Zoom and we hop over to the Discord voice chat to do some film dubbing. We use a ser- oh, wow. we, so we use a service called Watch Together, which lets everyone watch YouTube videos simultaneously. And we found that switching from Zoom to Discord had a similar kind of effect to the threshold memory thing in that we kind of got a burst of we, we kind of lost some of the tiredness and the fatigue when we moved over to Discord. So we were moving from one kind of virtual space to a different like one one application to a different application and it still had the a similar effect as to moving from one physical room to a different room that was so weird and like it definitely needs to be discussed more in the improv community because i've not seen anyone else talk about mm. this yet like i've not yeah. seen anyone else talk about this yeah no that's fascinating yeah and, and yeah well that explains a lot because <laughs> i've been tired all the time so if someone were to step up on stage with you step on stage with you uh what could they do to delight you either in improv or in role playing they're all the same i guess um it's really nice to like establish the relationship between the characters immediately like because first of all the audience are like oh cool uh now i know why why i need to care about these characters but also it's it's just really useful for the other person it's just like if i'm immediately establish oh this person doesn't like me or this this person's wildly in love with me how do how am i going to respond to that um or like that that stuff is so useful like that's why that's why i'm always telling people in improv sessions go for the relationship why should we care about these characters why are these characters stuck together right now so like yeah, yeah establishing relationship is just like always the most important thing for me yeah no, i 100% agree and also yeah as you suggest why why don't they just walk off the stage mm-hmm. you know what why why do they need to you know why are they they've been together and stuff like that cool that's cool right uh, and then big big final question okay <laughs> what would you describe as your signature move what's the what's the thing you do that saves the day and brings down the house every time has everyone going classic sophie i like um assigning meaning to stuff that i'm pretty sure the other players didn't mean anyone to assign meaning to <laughs> so Ooh, that sounds lovely um i i, I like kind of assigning weight emotional weight to sort of mundane details like that kind of alan bennett sort of way um i, I did a scene of I did, I did a rehearsal a long time ago where um my friend mitchell was playing like a like a kind of quite a mean-spirited commander of something and i was playing a small kid um and um he'd meant he, he'd been his character had been bullied by his colleagues earlier on they stolen his mars bar or something and then later on in the show i was like you can share my mars bar mister and everyone was Aww. like oh yeah i love that shit <laughs> yeah that's brilliant <laughs> Yeah, if you can just, it, it's just sometimes it's just having the spare brain power to kind of take that thing, put it in your back pocket, and then to be able to bring it back and then bring it back with emotion. Mm. Mm. Love it. Sounds fantastic. Brilliant. Um, I need one last thing to say. Thank you for being a guest on the Improv London podcast. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I made this. That's improv! <laughs> That's improv.